Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And now you can enjoy all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts on the Electric Now channel. Download Zumo, Distro TV, Stir, and the Electric Now app, where you can enjoy great television and movies from Electric Entertainment, as well as all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts like The 430 Movie, Inglorious Trexperts, The Best Movies Never Made, The Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast, and coming soon, Two on Who, a Doctor Who podcast. You must learn to listen to The Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital, wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, today is an exciting show because we're dealing with a very um, kind of obscure part of Star Trek ephemera. It's not as well known as a lot of er other eras, and yet it was a very fertile creative time for the franchise. And it, it, it sort of escaped... A little bit glimmers, but uh, there was a book a couple of years ago that the Reeve Stevens did about this era. Of course, in covering Star Trek, the motion picture, it's impossible not to talk about what happened during these sort of seminal eight years prior to production on that film. And uh, even Next Generation, when they were um, being uh, sidelined by the writer's strike of 1987, sort of dipped into the vaults and uh, revisited some of the scripts from this part of Star Trek history. And we're very lucky to have with us today. He was going to be the story, he was the story editor of Star Trek Phase Two. He also, with Ron Chusett, uh, helped create the story, the adaptation of Total Recall. Uh, he's worked with Tracy Torme on um, Sliders. Uh, and of course, uh, all the, you were post-Tracy, weren't you, John? And, uh, no, John I, was, I was first two years of Sliders. First two years. Good years, it's like I like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> It's right, the watchable years, exactly, exactly. I, that was the first time I was ever actually up in Vancouver to come to the set of the pilot because I was pretty good friends with uh, Tracy at the time and uh, was a journalist. And he said, "Oh, you got to come up and and, uh, and 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 you know watch us film the pilot." And it was a, it was a fun time. It was a a, a really uh, delicious premise, and obviously those first couple of years are, are wildly entertaining. Uh, I really enjoyed working on it. That was. Uh... It was a fun time for me. It was hard. It was hard work. I was walking around like a zombie. Working on a series is like, <laughs> it saps everything you've got. It takes everything out of you. But, uh, but still, that was a very fun and exciting time for me. Not to step on your introduction or anything, because Mark didn't finish it, but we're talking with Mr. John Povel. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I interrupted. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could, uh, but, you know, <laughs> 
you know, it's funny. Last year we spent a lot of the year sort of celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, the motion picture. But uh, one of the things we didn't really dive into as much was, of course, how phase two paved the way for that. Um, and uh, recently we had actually someone you're very acquainted with, Mark Cushman, talking about Genesis 2 and, and Quester tapes, which is sort of the, the gate, I guess it was the gateway drug for you into first meeting Gene Roddenberry back in the, uh, in the early to mid-70s. Tell us a little bit about how uh, you got involved initially with Gene and, and ultimately that led to you becoming through quite a, a story, a story editor of, of Phase 2, but the very early days of befriending Gene and getting involved as a young writer in Hollywood. Um, well, I was pretty fresh out of school. Uh, I went to UCLA film school. Um, and uh, I, was, uh, I was looking for work anywhere I could get it. I had been a Star Trek fan, not terribly surprising. Um, and when I heard that Gene was doing um, Genesis 2, when I first heard about it, um, I, uh, <laughs> I called up, I had actually, I had done, I don't know how much detail you want, but you can cut out anything you don't want. <laughs> I had done, I had worked on the KCET auction, um, in I think it was 1968, maybe 69, and David Gerald was running a, a group called the Suicide Squad that was a bunch of improvisational actors that were uh, doing bits about, doing bits with the things that they were auctioning hmm. uh, for KCET. So, um, so I had gotten to know David a little bit on it. I think I had given him something to read at one point and, uh, and asked him, you know, what do you think of this? And he said, uh, yeah, sure, kid, it's great. You know, you, you can be a writer. <laughs> and, and so I took that uh, very faint praise and, <laughs> and, uh, and contacted years later when I graduated, I contacted uh, Gene's office on Genesis 2, and uh, and his assistant at that time was Ralph Nevada. I don't know if that's a name you know. Uh, a few assistants to Gene that the name doesn't strike a bell. So, <laughs> so anyhow, I, I I told Ralph that David Gerald told me to call. <laughs> and Which, in he, a sense, he had. Huh? <laughs> Truly, in a sense, he had told you to call those many years before. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I said I was, uh, G David had recommended me and, uh, and suggested I call and I had a script that I had written, a science fiction comedy script that I had written for Ron Chusette, which was actually the first paid gig that I had. Hmm. Um, and I sure as hell wasn't paid very much, but um, it was based on a Robert Sheckley short story called The Ticket to Trinidad. Right. And uh, so I said, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to work with Gene. I'd love to work on this show. Um, here's my sample, if, you know. And so Ralph read the, read the script and he liked it very, very much. And he said, I'll give it to Gene, which was great. And uh, so he, 
you know, I don't remember how long it took Ralph to read it, but but it was fairly quick. Then he gave it to Gene, and uh, it took about a year. Um, <laughs> it's about right. <laughs> Genesis 2 had gone uh, yeah. by that point. Uh, Planet Earth, I don't remember whether Planet Earth was sort of reborn out of Genesis 2 at that point, but he was working on Quester. Um, I don't know if Gene ever read the script. I, he passed it along to DC Fontana. And, uh, and I have a copy of the little memo that DC wrote back, which uh, compared it to said it's not unlike something Harlan would have written. And, uh, you know, so if he can write, if he can write on budget, um, then, uh, you know, then maybe you can use them. Um, so, uh, so Gene agreed to bring me in to pitch uh, for, uh, for Quester. And I pitched Larry Alexander, who was the story editor for Quester. And, uh, and that was going along nicely. They, uh, I did a decent pitch and the, Larry liked what I wanted to do. And it was uh, going to, I think Michael Rhodes was the uh, producer. And uh, it was looking like I was going to get a shot at writing an episode. And then Gene had the falling out with the network and Quester was no more. So, um, but somewhere in the, uh, in the aftermath of that, uh, Gene said, well, I'm going to do a book and, uh, and, uh, do you want to do research for me? And so he hired me to be a researcher. I jumped at the chance, obviously. Um, I was being paid like 50 bucks a week to do this. Um, but it was at his house, uh, the, the old house on Leander Place. And, uh, and that was where I really got to know Gene. Uh, we, we would, you know, we would mostly sit around. Uh, you can cut this out if you want, but we would, mo we would sit around, smoke pot, drink. And, and bullshit back and forth and talk and um sounds like gene's house yeah yeah that's <laughs> and, not gonna get cut out that's essential <laughs> <laughs> so um you know so we would we would brainstorm and talk and the the book that he was gonna write was sort of the uh sort of the early stages of the god thing interestingly right. enough but this is before it was a Star Trek novel. This is when it was going to be an original science fiction novel, right? The yeah, exactly. At, at the time, Gene was saying, I have enough with Star Trek. I don't want Star Trek. I want to do something else. I want to move on. And uh, so we were, you know, um, my job was to try and research what the actual government response would be to a spaceship coming out, you know, in, in present day what the response would be, how um, NORAD and, and everything else and uh, would respond. And, you know, I looked it up. It was long before the internet. This was not easy research at the time. Um, That's why you're getting paid the big bucks, John. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so this went on for 
a few months, um, and then and then Jean got tired of the of the idea and uh, and dropped the novel. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, he had learned that what I had been doing to keep myself alive was uh, was freelance carpentry, handyman stuff, and uh, and Rod was newly born, yeah. and uh, and he wanted the house baby proofed because he didn't want to constantly be yelling, no, don't touch that, don't touch that. <laughs> so, I, with Lincoln Enterprises, we can't break it. Yeah. Yeah, if it, it was good enough for Harrison Ford, the carpentry, it was, it was good enough for you. You're like, I, I, can, I can do this. So, well, it was what, it was, what was paying the rent. Yeah, yeah sure. So, uh, so I wound up baby-proofing the house, and then there were some other things... Uh, you know, that came up and I was doing that. And, you know, and we would still, I'd still have dinner there two or three nights a week. Uh, we'd still go out in the pool and, and swim um, and, uh, and fight on paddle boards. We'd sit on paddle boards <laughs> and have wars to see who could knock each other over. Oh my goodness. And uh, Did you and, let him uh, win occasionally? Huh? Did you let him win occasionally? Did, I'm sorry? Did you let him win occasionally? Uh, no, I never let him win, but he did still okay, win good. occasionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think he'd have had any respect for me at all if I had let him win. <laughs> so you're, you're working with, with, with Gene at the time, and you're doing research, and you're baby-proofing the house for Rod, and, uh, you know, he's talking about how he doesn't want to be known just for Star Trek anymore. And then Star Trek rears its quote-unquote ugly head again. Because, I mean, at, that was a, his, sort of his lowest ebb financially. I mean, he was not, things were not going great. I mean, and I guess that's about the time Enter the Nine enters into your life, huh? Yes. <laughs> yes, indeedy, the Nine. And... Uh... So he, yeah, he, he got the gig on the nine, John Whitmore, and and I was uh, I was involved in a lot of the research on the nine again, and uh, so Stanford Stanford research, uh, Stanford Stanford uh, the the um, I'll put off uh, Russell Targ, uh, Stanford Research Institute, I think SRI. Um, we're, uh, we're conducting, they had a whole bunch of different machinery that they were using to test, uh, psychic abilities and whatnot. And I would love to playing around with those things, trying to predict what random color was going to come next and stuff like that. And we did remote viewing experiments and I had fun with that. Um, explain a little bit about what was the nine? John Whitmore and that whole thing for a lot of our listeners who probably have no idea what we're talking about right now. Okay. The nine. Um, and I may get some of this wrong because ultimately when I wrote the script, when I rewrote the script and, and I've had years and years involved with that script and with Whitmore and, and Phyllis Schlemmer, um, you know, a lot of what the script becomes ingrained in my memory, so I'm not entirely sure that everything I'm saying is accurate. But I believe that 
he was, you know, Gene's main source of income at that point in time was going out and doing speaking engagements and Star Trek conventions. Sure. And at one of those conventions, uh, he was approached by John Whitmore and offered 25 grand to write a screenplay that would prepare the world for a visitation from the nine. And the nine were a consortium of extraterrestrials. And they only communicated, to this point, they only communicated to us through trans channels. Um, or they initially, it was believed they were communicating through Uri Geller. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then, but then sort of, and the, they had a few others that were seemingly getting uh, communications. But uh, by the time they had contacted Gene, their trans channel was uh, was Phyllis Schlemm. And they, uh, they hired him, they paid for him to uh, go out on a research tour that included going to uh, the Stanford Research Institute. They, he got to visit with Clive Baxter from The Secret Life of Plants. He got to meet with Thelma Moss from Curly and Photography. Um, and he got to go to, um, to Ossining, New York and go to the Lab 9 compound, which, uh, which was where the center was. Uh, they had Andrea Puharish, um, who, who sort of ran the scientific, in scientific in quotes, uh, <laughs> part of the, uh, part of the uh, establishment. And uh, Puharish had his Faraday cage there. And Puharish, I don't know if, uh, Puharish was the physicist who had uh, certified that Uri Geller was for real. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew anything about that, but he wrote a book about uh, Uri Geller as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also on a Perry Mason episode. I don't know if you knew that. No. He was on a Perry Mason episode as an, as an expert in sci in uh, Psychic Phenomenon, and he featured the Faraday cage in that. <laughs> so, um, um, this is. so it was but, a group of arguably um, fringe scientific interests yes. that, that, that were uh, bringing the message of the Nine through uh, an entertainment form. But yes. most importantly, whose checks did not bounce. Right. If- Yes, Whitmore was at that time quite wealthy. Whitmore was also a race car driver. Did, I don't know if you knew that. Know that. He, uh, yeah, he was known as the racing baronet, Sir John Whitmore. Um, he actually, I believe, came in second in the um, in the uh, Le Mans race that is featured in. Um, in Ford versus Ferrari, uh, in the Mons race that was won, he came in second in that race. Wow. Um, <laughs> he also taught Steve McQueen how to drive race cars. Wow. Or was it aliens? We don't know. Huh? Said, or was it aliens? We don't know. Yeah, we don't. We don't. <laughs> no, no. That, it's okay. So that's so, 
amazing. So yeah, the the overlap and SRI, the How Put Off and Russell Targ um, group, were the people was the scientific group that was featured in the Men Who Stare at Goats. Right. Huh. So this kind of stuff is you know it's been running around out there in a lot of different forms in a lot of different ways. Anyhow, Gene needed the money. He took the job and uh, he wrote a script that was basically a travelogue of the research trip that he had done. And, uh, and, and that also included some of the, um, some of the uh, channeling sessions that he had attended. Mm-hmm. And uh, and ultimately, he uh, the result of all this was he said you know, there were some interesting things that he had learned and experienced and everything. He said these are very nice people. I don't I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which you know was very much not what they were looking for from him. Is it accurate to say that this was kind of a Ramana clef? Because I mean it was as I understand it, uh, about a sort of boozing, womanizing TV showrunner who gets involved with this group of people. And yeah. that's not at all what they <laughs> were looking for. Yeah, no, he, he was, uh, it was highly autobiographical. He painted a very ugly picture of himself and he painted a very ugly picture of his relationship with Majel. Um, but it was very transparently him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and his financial situation, and you know, and you know, it was clear that he had only taken the job for the money, and it was it was a bizarre script to write. Yeah. And uh, so, not surprisingly, the uh, Lab Nine was not terribly happy with the result. Um, the uh, but he was he was. Uh, paid to do a rewrite uh, as part of the deal, and uh, and he had pretty much had his fill with it. So he paid me ten percent of his, uh, or, no, twenty percent of his rewrite money, and uh, and I got to write rewrite uh, Gene Roddenberry on uh, on this script. And what I did was. Um, I, I tried to find a way to keep them both happy, to keep Lab 9 happy by giving them a little bit more weight and possibility and keep Jan, Gene happy by not absolutely saying it was real. And um, so I took the approach that uh, the, the first thing I did was I got myself really stoned and I allowed myself to believe, okay, what if this is real? What if they're really out there? And I was hit with just a massive wave of responsibility. Holy shit, if this is real, if this is real, I am either responsible for setting the world up for an invasion if they're not benevolent, or causing the world to miss a miraculous first contact if they are benevolent. Right. And, you know, and this was, this, this was like, yeah, it was really, <laughs> it was really, really difficult. And I realized, so I gave that 
sense to Gene. And, uh, and, I, then I, and then during the course of his travels, as he went to uh, explore all the psychic phenomenon, um, every time anything showed that, yeah, this is possible, this is beyond the range of chance and whatnot and has a sense of reality, it scared the shit out of him because it created greater sense of reality right. to, uh, to the possibility that it was real. He needed desperately to be in denial about this so that, you know, so that he didn't have the responsibility. Right. And so uh, the pressure through every part, of his, uh, every part of his trip becomes greater and greater and greater. And then, and, uh, and then there were a couple, there were other things that, uh, that start to uh, come into play is the fact, and I don't know how the fuck I had the guts to do this, but I, I wasn't thinking about it. I was just thinking about the project, but you know, this is a writer who had no other successes. The only success, you know, it now became the thing where the nine had given him his one big success in order to enable him to write the script that would prepare the world for their coming. Right. <laughs> so basically saying aliens gave Gene Star Trek. Is yes, it's aliens gave Gene Star Trek. So it wasn't just a matter of the responsibility. It was also his ego was now heavily involved as well. But only uh, basically two seasons of it. Huh? But only two seasons of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and then finally, um, weird story. I had never sat in on any of the channeling sessions. Um, and uh, so I had no idea how they went or what they, what they were or anything. But um, some years later, some years after I had done my initial rewrite um, and, uh, and the project had died and was at rest, um, after, shortly after Gene died, um, my wife and I uh, recontacted uh, John Whitmore and we said, well, maybe we could do it now. This, is, this would be a good time to try and go forward with the project again. And the internet was new and, and my wife, who is a marketing expert, even had the idea in 1992 of trying to crowdfund it with Star Trek fans. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so we did, we got in touch with, uh, with um, John Whitmore again, and he was up for it, and Phyllis Schlemmer was up for it. Um, and so we began anew. And I realized that, you know, my original draft was kind of out of date, and I needed to do some more. So I started reworking it again. Um, and uh, while I'm doing that, while I'm working on that, and, and I'm involved with it, I'm also, there were some other issues going on in, in my life, and we had a kind of a spiritual um, psychologist, someone who was trained in, in uh, psychology, but also was very spiritually inclined. And, um, and I was talking to her about, you know, just the issues in, in our lives, 
And at some point in time, I mentioned the Nile. And she looked at me, eyes wide, and said, you're the reason. I said, huh, what? <laughs> she said, somebody who calls himself Tom, uh, who claims to be part of the Nine, uh, has been trying to talk to me, has been trying to be in contact with me. And, you know, so I didn't know why or where this was coming from. So I, I didn't do anything. Do you want me to try and channel them for you? I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so she sets up, she goes into trance and channels Tom for me. And Tom was one of the people in the nine in the original script. <laughs> and believe me, she had never seen the script. Wow, that's so I'm so I'm talking to Tom and the first the first question that I want to ask uh, is the question that Gene never asked in any of his channeling sessions. The first question that I want to ask is how do I know you're real? I don't get that question out of my mouth. I don't get to even ask that question. And I get a sensation in my upper right thigh, in my thigh. And he says to me, what you're feeling in your leg right now is us. And I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was one thing to get myself really stoned and let myself believe it. it this was a whole, you know, <laughs> right. this, this was an order of uh, 10 orders of magnitude greater. I mean, this floored me. And, you know, so we had the rest of the conversation. Um, I was feeling, I started to feel, you know, all those pressures again about, the need to make it happen. And, uh, and Tom told me, don't worry about it. We have other things going on. We have other, other channels working. Um, you know, you are, you know, do the best you can and, uh, and don't worry about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you can speak for us. He said, you are, you are on board with this. You can speak for us. So I continued, you know, so I went back to work on it and I continued to uh, rewrite it and I rewrote it a bunch of times. Uh, but it got to be, I think, uh, ultimately it got to be a pretty good script. Majel shot it down. And the interesting thing was Majel had no contractual right to do so. Right. John Whitmore had paid for the script and the and all the conditions of that contract had been met. Um, the only thing is, neither John nor I wanted to do anything that would, you know, that would basically piss them off. We wouldn't let them, we wouldn't let Majel and he subsequently wouldn't let Rod control the project. But we, you know, we wanted 
to work cooperatively with them. Right. So, um, so I, you know, the, the project never happened and, uh, and I let go of it. I always felt that, you know, I only want to do this for the sense of the greatest and highest good, because I now believe in that. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I wrote it to that, uh, with that in mind and, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the way the script ultimately plays out is Gene has under all that pressure, Gene has a nervous breakdown. I gave, I gave Gene the moment in a, in the, in a channeling session, I gave him that moment mm -hmm. that I had right. where the, what you're feeling right now is us. And that triggers a nervous breakdown. And he then writes, in in the uh, in the nervous breakdown, he basically hallucinates that he hijacks the Enterprise, the the uh, the starship. He hijacks the Enterprise and goes off to meet with the Nine the way Kirk would have. <laughs> that's that's wild, and it's such a shame. And, and, and that did you ever after Majel passed away? You said you you you, you know Rod was the same we, thing. We came close to being able to do it with Rod. We were talking about contracts and everything, and uh, I, I I don't know whether I don't know who it was at the company, but it might have been Trevor Roth. Uh, sure. I don't know, but uh, but it started to get it started to get legal again and started to. You know, the, they wanted control, and they were never going to get control. I was never going to give up control of it. Sure. And, uh, and you know, Whitmore has since passed away, but uh, but I would suspect that even Jason, his son, would not give up control of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's wow. that's always been total fascination to me that whole that whole episode and from the first time i heard you talk about it uh, it's just completely amazing and i hadn't heard the i hadn't heard the uh, the capper about what happened after roddenberry's death with you so that's uh, that was fascinating yeah it really is because i mean i remember reading and i guess it was the hollywood reporter you know what 10 years ago whatever it was about that the nine was being resurrected by by you and 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 it was like, oh, wow, talk about a blast from the business. That's really interesting. And I always wondered what happened. So now, now we know. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it, um, it's a shame. It's a shame, really, because I think, I think it could have been a really interesting part of Gene's legacy. The, and it could have been, you know, ultimately, it was not Gene saying they were there, but it was, uh, it, it posed, it did pose the idea that uh, at the at the end of the thing, um, the idea is sorry, the nine tell him when he's out there with uh, you know with with Kirk and Spock and himself, um, you know it, you know why should I trust you? Why should I trust you? And and the nine tell them because you're one of us. This was your idea. The idea of right. the idea of giving yourself Star Trek and 
doing this was your idea. You've forgotten. <laughs> now, speaking of commissions during this low ebb in the uh, Gene's life, were you involved at all with the Paul McCartney project, the, the Battle of the Bands? In Outer oh, God, how I wanted to be. <laughs> I went I, uh, I went with Gene and Majel and Susan Sackett to the Wings Over America uh, concert at Forum. And we were, in, we were all invited back to, the, uh, to uh, the party after the concert. Um, and, uh, and I met Paul there. And, uh, and Paul came, was making the rounds of the tables and he came up to the table. And uh, when he got to Gene's table and he, you know, of course said hi to Gene and Major. And then he looked at me and he went, ah, Mr. Spock, how very nice to meet you. <laughs> And, and I went, da, 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 da. Oh <laughs> I had goodness. nothing to say. But, uh, but yeah, I, I had desperate, I knew once I knew that Gene had, you know, did not feel that that was the right project for him, that he could do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was desperate to try and get him to let me do it because I certainly would have been able to do it. Right. And uh, didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, which, my life. I got more projects that didn't happen. <laughs> Speaking of unfortunate things that didn't happen, so shortly after Paramount comes to uh, comes to Gene and uh, they're toying with the idea of doing a low budget feature again, and I guess that was cue the re the reemergence of the God thing, and then you also had a couple of pitches that uh, you had brought to Gene. Uh, yeah, tell well, us a little. I had one pitch that I had brought to Gene. I wrote up a treatment because um, Gene had, you know, Gene said uh, Paramount's not taking my my feature idea. They're still interested in doing a feature. If you have any ideas you think would be good for a feature, you know, give them to me. I'll pass them along if I like. Them. So, um, so I wrote a I, I wrote a treatment about. Um, the uh, sort of the history of how how Vulcan became uh, became let go of logic, uh, let go of emotions. Yeah. Why they let go of emotions, and and it was back and forth uh, a time travel story. And um, what had happened the the part that was in the present was that um, Vulcan was suddenly belligerent to the, to the, uh, to the Federation and they were, they were threatening and, uh, and it was, we were on the verge of war with, with Vulcan. And uh, what, what is discovered is that, um, I don't remember the exact, I don't remember the chronology of it, but, in the past, Vulcan had been in a war before they had uh, let go of all their emotions. They had been in a war with someone and they had devised a weapon that projected a psychic cloud that would, that would generate distrust in the hearts and minds of their enemies mm. so that their enemies would fight amongst themselves and destroy them, uh, each other. 
And uh, what was, and it turns out that what happened was that uh, unfortunately, this cloud only worked on themselves. Mm. <laughs> and what was happening now was that planet Vulcan had wandered around in a in a uh, you know in a kind of a loop and they were passing through that cloud again uh -huh. that they had projected out into space and spock they needed spock as someone who had emotions and both emotions and logic to go back and prevent the cloud from being generated uh, generated in the first place. And so that was the crux uh, of the idea. And uh, Gene read it and he said, uh, this is very, very good. I think it'd make a better episode than a, than a feature. Um, you know, but nice try. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a few months later, though, he, uh, he calls me up and uh and he says i have uh i have a new idea for uh for a story for a star trek movie uh do you want to write it with me and uh i said yeah <laughs> so um so uh i got hired by gene and paramount and uh and we co-wrote this next version which was also coincidentally a time travel story in which we had to go back and, and solve issues um, that had been generated by, in this case, it was generated by Scotty. The Enterprise had been sucked into a black hole and, uh, and Scotty had sort of escaped and, um, and wound up on Earth in like 19, 30 something and uh, and he would have tried desperately to avoid changing history but history kept coming at him and uh, and ultimately he couldn't help but um, save the world from World War two and, and all kinds of things and because he had altered history to such a great extent and um, and prevented a bunch of the bad shit that humanity had to go through. Um, he also prevented Earth from ever getting into the Federation, from getting into space travel and everything else. So, um, so uh, I forget how, how and why it was that uh, Kirk, Spock, and everybody else gets regenerated um, by I forget the force by which they are regenerated, but they are regenerated and they have to go back and they have to change things and they have to allow Earth to go through World War II and all that other shit. So uh, in order to make things right and uh, and in doing so, they have to uh, oppose uh, Scotty, who is uh, the de facto ruler of the world. Right. <laughs> Now, even though that that never got made, a lot of elements of that find its way into future iterations of track. I mean, you have the cloud, obviously, in the, your first pitch. You have, you know, changing the past, which is, uh, you know, in World War II. I mean, in Phase Two, you have a script where they go back and Pearl Harbor is uh, 
it doesn't happen and 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 the the future of the world is affected by the US not entering World War II and of course uh Roddenberry famously wrote you know his his version of what would have been Star Trek II in which uh you know Kirk meets Kennedy and uh the past has changed when uh the Enterprise keeps Kennedy from going to Dallas so i mean it seems like the seeds that were planted during that sort of fertile time uh, uh, keep getting watered by uh, by Gene for the next ten years. Um, so and more so. I mean, uh, you know, in truth, if you read the Bible for Star Trek Phase Two, and you look at Next Generation, right. the template was Phase Two. I mean, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but you had you had Zahn, who was the totally logical Vulcan who felt that in order to work with humans, he needed to learn everything he could about human emotions. Right. I think that's data. Yep. We had Ilya, who is Diana Troy. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I mean, right. we had uh, we had Decker, who is Riker. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the relationship was intended to be very much sort of the Decker-Kirk relationship was supposed to evolve into what the, uh, the Riker-Picard relationship was. So it was all there. Right. Right. It was all there. Uh, um, well, we should we should set the table for what becomes the phase two, because, of course, there were these. A, a, a couple attempts to get a movie going and then Paramount decides they're going to launch this fourth network, the Paramount Hughes network. Uh, it's going to be spearheaded on Saturday nights by a new Star Trek series. And, uh, and Gene's back in the offices of Paramount. And, uh, you know, at first you're not story editor, I, I think, but you did suggest Harold Livingston, didn't you? Or how, where did Harold, Harold come from? Uh, uh, I, I had nothing to do with getting Harold selected for a producer that was way beyond my pay grade. I was assistant to the producer at that time. Right. Um, and I didn't know about Harold at all. Um, but, um, but when, but when Harold did come on board, I did wind up in a tremendous number of the pitches with Harold because Gene, you know, Gene had other stuff to do, and uh, Harold needed somebody who knew Star Trek. Right. So I would be there, and uh, I would, you know, pretty much advise him as to whether it was or was not Star Trek, whether it, uh, you know, whether it violated canon, whether it, you know. Uh, so that was sort of my role, and uh, and it was Harold who insisted that I become story editor. Mm -hmm. uh, Gene resisted it. Um, and interestingly, I only recently learned, I forget where, um, that after Gene initially resisted it, when he did finally accept it, he pitched me hard. He, he, mm -hmm. he did support me in ways that I never knew. Um, so I was, I was really grateful to learn that because I had thought that, you know, it, I thought it was only Harold. Right, right. Now, let me ask you, because, you know, we talked, obviously, you're a big genre fan, but one thing we didn't talk about was necessarily were you a Star Trek fan. Now, in, in listening to that answer, I assume you indeed were a Star Trek fan before you met 
Gene, that you were you. It sounds like you were very knowledgeable about uh, Trek at that point. Yes, I was definitely a Star Trek fan. There's, uh, you know, which is not to say that I loved every episode at all. I thought, I thought, roughly thirty percent of Star Trek was absolutely mind-bogglingly wonderful, and I thought, you know, probably another forty percent was, you know, good to better than average, mm-hmm. and I thought the last 30% was eminently forgettable. Now, I would think the big challenge you had on phase two was unlike the first show, everyone who walked through that door thought they were an expert on Star Trek, whether it be the, the, the big science fiction authors who all thought they were geniuses or all the friends of Gene who had worked on Genesis two and, and worked on Quester who were all looking to have, you know, uh, favors, uh, uh, payback, uh, you know, we're looking for a freelance gig. Or, you know, even the newcomers. The one thing everybody I imagine had in common was they thought they knew Star Trek better than anybody. So that must have been a challenge for you. And then you had Harold, who basically knew nothing about Star Trek and, in fact, didn't even like Star Trek. So I can't imagine, you know, that must have been a very challenging time for you in terms of developing this new series. Um, I didn't think of it really as challenging so much. I just, you know... For better or worse, my, my tendency is sort of the same way that I go ahead and, and you know, tell Gene you in, in the nine that I, you know, I, I, <laughs> Harold read the, my version of the nine and he said, and he looked at me and he said he had two comments. Number one, this is Gene. This <laughs> is really Gene. And number two, you gave this to him? <laughs> you let him read this? And, and, you know, and so it was sort of the same thing. I, I, my focus was always on what I believed was best for the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about, you know, who am I offending? Who am I not offending? What is the thing? I would present, I, I would give reasons. I would say, you know, this doesn't work because this, 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 and this. And, you know, for me, it doesn't work. Um, and, uh, or I would say it did. I mean, there were, my favorite, by far, my favorite episode of Star Trek Phase Two, which I think would have been an absolute classic and probably considered to be the best Star Trek episode ever, was Richard Bach came in with Practice and Waking. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about that episode and why you think it would have been so great. Of course, Richard had p- pitched to the original Star Trek and never sold anything. But, um, you know, he then became, a, you know, he's a very well-known author. Uh, yeah, obviously. Uh, Illusions is one of my favorite books ever. Um, but, uh, but Practice and Waking was an episode uh, about... Um, a woman who uh, a woman who is in suspended animation on a spaceship, uh, an earlier version of a of an Earth spaceship, and who is dreaming different lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the Enterprise comes and uh, and boards that ship, find you know finds the ship out in space and and boards the ship. And Scotty 
accidentally touches something that causes a theta synchronize. And so he winds up in her dream, which is taking place in, in um, like 17th, 17th or 18th century Scotland. Hmm. And she is, I believe, in danger of being burned as a witch. And he falls in love with her and is helping her. The story is a beautiful love story for Scotty. Um, there's tremendous, uh, you know, there's jeopardy because both Scotty and the woman are in danger of dying for real. Right. And, um, and Kirk and the others are trying to get him back. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it was, and it was absolutely beautiful. And it was such such a heartfelt story, and so beautifully written. I just it, you know, I, I think uh, it's really sad to me that that one never got made. You know, it's interesting. A couple of these stories you mentioned, um, Scotty is the protagonist, and we all know, you know, Bill Shatner you know, throughout his history in Star Trek, wants to be the first guy through the door, right? This why, uh, you know, he wants to be the center of attention. I'm curious, was that something that was ever a concern when you were talking about this, when you're looking to do these stories around these other characters? You know, you didn't have Leonard anymore, so, you know, you don't have to worry about Leonard's ego, but, you know, certainly for Bill, you know, he's the star of the show. And uh, you, I hear a lot of Jimmy doing, you know, I'm just curious about that. Is that something that was... There yep. was there was there was still plenty for Kirk to do. There was not uh, it was not like uh, Kirk was shut out at all. Um, yes, it, you know it may very well have turned out to be a problem down the road. Mm. We never got to production. We never got to the point where uh, where Bill got to weigh in on the episode. Right. So you know there could have been tremendous issues with that but it, by that time Richard Bach was a gigantic name right yeah and you know you don't fuck with a Richard Bach script at least not very much I mean I I gave him notes I did give him notes but uh yeah this is he didn't need a lot of notes see? how do you how do you think it would have gone if uh you know Star Trek 2 Star Trek Phase Two would have gone forward as a series and been produced. What do you think the history of Star Trek would be now? Do you think it would have been equally as popular? What uh, What's your feelings on it? I, I have no idea, really. I you know I mean, I I tried as hard as I could to you know to find episodes that were different than, than what had been done before. Um, I did have, I did initiate what became known as the curse of next generation, the writer's curse of next generation, because um, I had written a memo about you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, that, we, that we are in this time going through a phase where we are, we are 
passing from adolescence as a, as, a, as a race. The human race is passing through adolescence, which is the time when you discover how much power you have, to adulthood, where you discover how much responsibility that needs. Right. And that, you know, that, the, uh, that we as a race will not survive un until and unless we accept that responsibility and start behaving responsibly, right. which is, you know, climate change and, you know, environmental, um, you know, making sure we don't poison ourselves, making sure that we don't get our, you know, create our own extinction. Right. And my belief is that any, any advanced civilization has to pass through this phase. And my belief was that if we, you know, if we survive to the Star Trek generation, uh, which was something that Gene was not really optimistic about at all, mm. I had positioned it that if we do, this is what has to happen. This is what will happen. And he agreed with that. He thought that was absolutely right on. And so that became the writer's curse of next generation because as long as Gene was alive, he believed, as, as I believed, that our characters had to, had to exhibit this kind of consciousness revolution right. that we, in fact, desperately need to go through now in order to make it past climate change, make it into, you know, a viable future. Right. This concept of the new humans that have evolved past pettiness and... Uh, and uh, selfishness and looking more out outward well it was it was about it was simply about uh for want of a better word uh you know enlightened self-interest right where you recognize your connections to things and you have respect for life forms mm -hmm. genuine respect for life forms you, you, you don't just dismiss something because you find it unpleasant. Right. John, let me ask you, because, you know, obviously in TV today, most shows, the showrunner is responsible not only for the script development, but also overseeing, you know, physical production, casting, sets. Back in phase two, you had Bob Goodwin, who was sort of overseeing, he was more than a line producer. He was more like what Berman was early on the Next Generation days. And then you had... Um, you know, her uh, Livingston and, and of course you overseeing uh, the development of scripts. Uh, how involved were you on the physical production side and a lot of the hires that were going on in terms of, you know, bringing back like Matt Jeffries as a consultant and uh, uh, William Ware Tice and, 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 and were you happy with the direction that things were going uh, in terms of physical production? Um, I was not terribly involved in that. I mean, I was aware of it and I was involved with it. I became, uh, when I was associate producer on the feature, I was a lot more involved with it. Right. Uh, I had interactions with, uh, I had interactions with Abel. I had interactions with Magicam. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, I was responsible for better or worse for bringing in, uh, Nicholson and Longbotham, uh, uh, for, who did you know the engine room and the microwave walk, um, and uh, you know the V'ger's big right, the V'ger bowl, the V'ger bowl, yes. 
Um, you know, so, um, so I was a lot more involved with that. I did, I was involved with some of the viewer screens, uh, but, uh, but in the, uh, in the series, uh, no, that was largely out of my province. Um, I had to be, I had to be aware of it. I had to be aware of where things were on the set and I had to be aware of what the costumes were. Um, you know, just, but it, it didn't figure prominently into, uh, into what I was doing. Um, my focus was on the stories and the characters. And overall, were you happy with the direction script development was going that first season? Um, overall, I would say that probably, <laughs> probably my critique of, uh, of, you know, Star Trek original series of 30%, 40%, 30% probably would have held true for the next (laughs) two as well. I think we would have had roughly three or four scripts that would have been just gangbusters and, you know, four or five more that were, you know, solid and, you know, and then we would have had some clinkers as well, some clinkers. Did it come as a, 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 a big surprise to you when, you know, obviously it was like 15 years later, you find out that um, Star Trek The Next Generation is adapting your script of the child as an episode? I mean, at that point, you figured, you know, phase two is long over, motion picture happened, this is never, and then you find out this is being res- resurrected after all these years. Did, did that did that come as a surprise? And were you sort of gratified by the final result? And Hi, you know, what was your sort of feeling? I was, I was so pissed off at the, the, the version of the child that Morris Hurley did. I was living. Um, you know, the, mine was allegory. And, it, you know, and it, it, was, it was the lessons that a light being, you know, would have to learn in order to pass through the stage of being human and evolve. And, um, and it was a story of evolution and it was a story of evolution of a higher being. Right. And, you know, and he turns around and makes it, uh, yeah, uh, the, the kid wanted to know what it was like to be a human. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just, uh, it, it trivialized it so. It trivialized the theme. It trivialized the, you know, I don't know. It, 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 it just... And it, and it was the relationship between mother and daughter, you know, because Ilya really, you know, really knew and understood what was happening and gave her daughter, you right, know, right. gave up her daughter, you know, for this higher purpose. Right. And, and the daughter had to learn that her body was an empty shell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so, uh, you know, it was horribly frustrating to me. And then I got to do my own version of it um, for Star Trek New Voyages. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the James the, Colley group up in New York. Yeah, the James Colley group. And, uh, and I wasn't happy with my version either. And I, I never got to, I never got to, uh, Todd Ramsey was going to edit it for me, and Carly didn't allow that to happen. He never let the uh, the uh, the footage 
go to him right. uh, to get to Todd. And, uh, and I'm not saying it would have been vastly better. I, I do think it probably would have been vastly better, but you know, I made mistakes too. And uh, uh, it was a very much a learning experience. I hadn't directed anything since graduate school. Um, but, uh, but I do think it would have been better and, uh, and it could have been better. It could have been better from the writing perspective. It could have been better from a directing perspective, it could have been better from an acting perspective that I didn't pull the performances along as much as I thought I had when I, you know, sure. when I saw the, the footage. So, you know, uh, but my tendency is always you know, in anything that I've ever done, my tendency is to see is to see forever what I think is wrong with it and the imperfections of it and uh, and take relatively little satisfaction. <laughs> I, before we before we run out of time, I, I want to uh, take a uh, take a very selfish uh, uh, amount of time and say that last time I saw you, John, in person was probably one of the funnest experiences I've ever had. We were at the Hollywood Bowl in, uh, in early uh, 2001, I believe, uh, at a concert of music from the motion picture where we sure. were screaning. With, uh, and we were sitting Bill there Smith with... Bob Wise. Yeah, it was just amazing. We were sitting with Bob Wise and Millicent, his wife, and, and Jerry, Gold, Jerry freaking Goldsmith. And, uh, and, uh, and, did both my movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and, and of course, uh, Dave Fine and Mike Medicino and I, and we were all sitting there together watching this thing and it was the most fun I've ever had. And, uh, and you were there. So. <laughs> yes, and you were too. And it was, it was a fabulous evening. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've always, any time I got to be with Bob was was always a great time. I, and of I, course, Michelle, your lovely wife, was there too. Just going to say, probably the greatest gift Star Trek gave you was your wife, who was uh, Harold Livingston's assistant, I think, when you met, right? Uh, no, she was uh, she was uh, Bob Goodwin's assistant when Goodwin's assistant, right? And then uh, famously uh, got promoted to uh, run Epsilon Nine in the. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and uh, and she's in the other room right now. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I she was a, she was a fabulous gift, and of course, our children are fabulous gifts. So, uh, I will be forever grateful to Star Trek for those. Can you believe that after all these years? I mean, you know, it's been a long time since Phase Two. Uh, you know, the studio uh, let Phase Two go. Um, uh, are you are you surprised people are still so interested in this show? And uh, you know what was it like when you found out that it wasn't moving forward? I got to imagine that's heartbreaking after you gave so much to this, and there were so many, as you say, of these projects that you get so excited about. You know, and uh, whether it be a new Star Trek movie or, the, and then at the last second, the rug is pulled out from under you. I think that happens to every writer there is. I, you know, I mean, we, you know, we live on hope and we are constantly crushed by disappointment. 
<laughs> and um, I have had, you know, I have had projects and develop multiple projects and development at Universal. I've had uh, I've had them um, at Allied Artists. Michelle, can you get this? <laughs> There's a probe. Uh, There's a probe that wants contact. Maybe it's Tom again. External. <laughs> We, we uh, think it's Tom calling you back. Strange <laughs> sensation on your leg, uh, John. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it yes, the, the, the short answer is yes. Of course, I was horribly disappointed. I was crushed. I was really looking forward to being story editor on Star Trek for, you know, at least a couple of years and then maybe moving on up higher. Uh, but, um, you know, it it, uh, it is these things happen. Uh, I have, you know, I have had disappointments before. I had thought that the uh, the treatment that Gene and I did uh, for the feature, I thought had real possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, you just never know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, John, we're so appreciative of you taking the time to look back at uh, phase two. And I know um, you spoke to Mark Cushman at length for his new book, uh, which yes. is. Let me let me do the shameless plug, plug for Mark Cushman's <laughs> book. If you want vastly more detail than the insane amount of detail I provided here, um, <laughs> you can get a lot more of it at These Are the Voyagers. Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, volumes two and three. I think they'll be coming out, that book will be coming out in about six weeks or something. So, uh, stored there in every detail. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's worth noting that you turned over the voluminous amount of files and memos uh, from that era to, to Mark. So, uh, it, it will hopefully be the final word on. Uh, phase two uh, at this point. Uh, and as we said, there's some nice nice work that the Reeve Stevens did a bunch of years ago, but again, that was sort of an authorized book. So I'm sure the warts and all, the warts were sort of sanded off. Um, some of the legendary battles between uh, Gene and Harold <laughs> were probably watered yeah, down. Well, there were no shortage of, but the battles between Gene and Harold were much, much more pronounced in the movie than they were in the series. Right. Yeah. So um, this was uh, the early phase, the con before the storm. Right. Yeah. The con before the storm. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much. And uh, if uh, you enjoyed today's episode, uh, join us every Saturday. And of course, you can download the Electric Now app and watch uh, video podcasts of Inglorious Trexperts, along with other podcasts like the 430 Movie, Best New Movies Never Made, and uh, a bunch of other shows. And uh, until then, this is Mark Altman. Darren Doctorman saying thank you and keep on trekking and gloriously, of course.
This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.